0: Welcome to the Fairview Church Podcast. At Fairview Church, we are dedicated to reaching our neighbors with the true freedom found in full surrender to Christ. To find out more about our church, including service times, location, and current sermon series, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org. Good morning, Fairview Church. This morning we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. So, I'll let you stay seated for the reading of God's word this morning because it's one of Jesus's longer parables. In Luke 15, Jesus says this. He also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against, he- against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick! Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him. And your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I have been slaving many years for you and I have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, You are always with me and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He is lost and is found. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. All right. I hope if you have your Bibles, you will keep them open to Luke 15 because we're going to be moving through this story again as we look, but uh, as we start this morning, I just want you to think for a moment of how many children's movies are about a child being separated from their father. Have you ever thought about that? Think about how many movies are out there. One of my, one of my very favorites back from the, the 1980s, uh, so popular today is an American tale. Do you remember an American tale with of the Mouse and' he 's on the, the this this ship in the middle of a storm, and he disobeys his papa 's orders and he winds up getting separated from his father and you know he 's singing somewhere out there and he 's thinking about his family and then at the end, I mean, I choke up every time I watch that movie at the end when the the father and the son when, when, when Five finally meets his papa again, you know, or you think about finding Nemo that 's another example of a son being Separated from his father, what happens? Well, Nemo disobeys his dad, and he winds up, you know, in the in an aquarium in a dentist's office. And what does his father Merlin do? But traverse Marlin, uh, traverse all the oceans, you know, doing whatever he can to get back to his son. And you think back to some of the older movies and musicals, like Annie. It's a story about an orphan orphan girl who who longs for a family. Or you think about Home Alone. And Kevin wants to be separated from his family at the beginning of the movie. But by the end of the movie, he can't wait for his family to be back, right? And it's even not just kids movies and Christmas movies, but it's adult movies too. Think about the popularity of the Liam Neeson movies, Taken, right? Where there's a separation and the father's doing whatever he can to rescue his daughter, right? This is just this theme that you see in movie after movie and film after film and story after story, we keep going back to it. And you know the reason why? It's because stories of separation and reunion, longing and fulfillment, exile and return, the reason they strike a chord in our hearts is because these stories in one way or another mirror the great story of the world. In which we as sinners who are lost and in bondage and separated from our father need to be found and set free. So as we continue on in our series on the stories Jesus told, it's not surprising that Jesus himself tells a story about separation and reunion, about going away and returning. And that's the story that we generally call the prodigal son. But I think if you, if we, once we take a look at it this morning, it may be better to call this the father of two lost sons, of two lost sons, because both the sons are lost. Both are estranged from their father, but in different ways. Okay, so if you've got your Bibles open, we're going to walk through the parable again. Let's start with the rebellion of the older, of the younger son. That's how the parable of the prodigal starts off. So you've got this man, he's got two sons and Jesus' audience, just so you are aware, Jesus' audience is going to automatically assume that these sons are gonna receive an inheritance. They're gonna receive an estate. Uh, An inheritance would pass from family to family, from father to sons, but we see something very strange in this passage, something unusual, shocking even. The younger son goes up to his father and he demands the inheritance now. So basically, he's saying he wants the inheritance when his father is still living. So I just want you to understand just how shocking this would have been in the first century Jewish context. By the son going up to the father and asking for his inheritance, you know what he's implying? He's basically saying, Dad, I can't wait for you to die. Give me what you can give me. Give me what's going to be coming to me. I want what you can give me. I don't want you. That's what the younger son is saying. It would be similar today to like a teenager going up to their mom or their dad and like spitting in their face and saying, I want you dead. That's what the younger son is doing. Can you imagine the shock that would be? So, I mean, Jesus tells us the younger son goes to the father and he says, dad, I want the inheritance. It's like saying, dad, I want everything that you have worked so hard to earn. I want everything you can give me. It's all gonna be mine anyway, but I don't want you. Give me what you can give me and then you're out of my life. I wonder how many times people treat God the same way. Isn't the essence of sin wanting to put ourselves in the place of God? Does sin not manifest itself in that we want the gifts of God, but we don't want the giver himself? I mean, just think about the gifts. Of God. It's like saying, Lord, yes, we want your beautiful creation. Lord, yes, we want the social order that, that according to your laws are established. We love the institutions, Lord, the, the gifts of family and the gifts of uh, functioning government and the, the, the gift of being able to work and to find prosperity and to be able to, to, to pursue whatever happiness we think we want. We want all of these gifts of creation, but we don't want God. It's like we, want the, we don't want the responsibilities. We don't want God's rules. We don't want his regulations. We don't want his scriptures. We don't want God. We just want what God can give us. And so what we do is we savor the creation and we snub the creator. Jesus is painting a picture of the outward, the rebellious nature of sin. But I want you to notice, if you have your Bibles open, look at what the father in the passage does. Look at verse 12 carefully. It says, so he distributed the assets to them. Do you see that? So first of all, the father does what the younger son asks. He gives him the inheritance, but notice it says them. He gives the older brother his share too. And the older brother because he's the firstborn, he's gonna get an even bigger portion of this inheritance. Now, I want you just for a moment, no, we're talking about the younger brother, but just imagine the older brother for just a second. Can you imagine what this older brother must've been like? If this were your family, okay, if your younger brother was like defiant, spitting in the face of your father and was doing this outrageous thing that everybody in the little village is going to find out about, right? Everyone in the community is gonna hear about this. I mean, this is scandalous. What would you do if you're the older brother? Well, I tell you, in Jesus's day, the older brother would have been expected to step into the middle of the situation, basically, to take the hand of the father, to take the hand of that younger brother, to bring them together and to say to the younger son, like, stop this. Like, what are you doing? We're going to be shamed in front of the whole community. We can't have this happen. Like, we've got to come together. We've got to, you've got to reconcile. The older brother would have been expected to jump headfirst into the middle of the quarrel and become this, this bridge of reconciliation between the father and the younger son. But not this older brother. All he does is just pocket his share of the inheritance and stay quiet. There's no passionate defense of his father's honor. There's no outcry against his younger brother's actions. No He just takes his part of the inheritance and stays quiet. But his silence is deafening. And see, I want you to see this. Jesus is already painting a picture of two types of sinners. Okay, on the one hand, you've got the openly rebellious sinner, the prodigal son. Okay, the the one that's ready to like shout in the face of God. But then there's that subtle sinner, that quiet sinner, that, that, the sinners the that are often in our churches, people who might be members, who might appear to be close to God, but really, if they were pressed, they're really only pursuing God for what they think they can get. What they think is going to be theirs. Only there for what it's going to do for them. Only there so that they can pocket their share, make sure they've got their fire insurance to stay out of hell. You know, they go to church because, well, you know, maybe they like the children's program or maybe they like the youth activities or, or maybe they, they they need someone to marry off their kids or they need someone to be there. If someone dies, they've got to bury, you know, there are services week after week. And this is true all across the country, all across the world, seemingly close to God, but actually in their hearts, far from him. Now notice verse 13. It says, not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and he traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. So not many days later, he brought it all together. What this means is when it says he gathered, it means he, he basically, the implication here is he put all of the assets together from the inheritance and now he is selling this off quickly to make cash so that he can go and do what he wants. So he's converting the father's estate into cash so he can spend it the way he wants to spend it. And I just want you to picture the scene. Imagine this village, like, imagine this is a town like Mayberry, okay? Where Aunt Bee knows what's happening to Goober and Goober knows what's happened with Floyd. And like that kind of, like, this is a small town. This is a village. Jesus is telling this story. Everybody knows everybody's name. It's a tight-knit community. Everybody knows what's going on. So can you imagine the gossip and the shock that this community would be feeling? The shock waves that would go out. And Jesus says, not many days later, I think, hinting there, because the younger brother would have to do this fast. Because the, the whole village can hardly wait for a, a scoundrel to, like this to get on his way. You know, I mean, they'd they basically be maybe buying and selling some stuff, but also kind of disgusted with the behavior of this younger son. And so the, the, the judgment, that hate, the disgust of the entire community is kind of gathering on this little boy, on this, on this younger son's head, okay? So now imagine the younger brother who's already done something shameful to his, fam- to his dad. Everybody in the village knows about this. Now he's going to the village to sell off at cheap prices the work of his father's hands so he can convert that to cash and get on his way. And listen, sin always leads to the cheapening of God's gifts. Consider God's gifts. Consider the environment, God's creation. Consider the social order he has established. Consider marriage. Sexuality. Look at all of the things that God has given us and then look at how society cheapens them. Do we not see the cheapening of God's gifts all throughout our society today? I mean, just like the the the, the younger son wanted to profit from his dad without continuing a relationship. This is what we in the world do as well. We want God's good gifts, but we don't want the relationship that comes with the gift giver. And so we wind up cheapening the gifts that God has given us. We exploit these blessings without submitting to God's law. Basically, we take God's treasures and we sell them off as if they were junk. Jesus goes on and says, the boy squandered his estate in foolish living. So he spent everything. After he had spent everything, it says a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. See, this is where life circumstances suddenly show up. You realize what you've done. You know, you might be here today and maybe you think there's that one thing that you're holding on to that's gonna satisfy you, that there's this one pleasure this one thing, this thrill, this thing, this person, this achievement, whatever it might be, that then you're gonna be satisfied. But what it actually does when life circumstances hit and they hit hard is the famine from the outside shows the famine on the inside. And suddenly there's a famine in your soul, something that hungers for more. And Jesus says that when the famine arose, that's when he began to feel like he was in need. Jesus says, then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. So the word there in the original is he hired himself out to. It's like kind of gives us a connotation like he, it's like he glued himself to this person. He attached himself to this person. It's like he joined himself to this person. So basically it's this idea of desperation. So here he is dying. The famine in society, the famine in the world has exposed the famine of his soul. And so he, he does whatever he can to attach himself to this, to this person that he thinks is going to provide hope. But he actually becomes a slave. And you just think about it. How many of us do we look for something that we think is going to provide hope? And in our desperation, we turn to this or to that. For many, it's the bottle For others, it's drugs, alcohol. For many, it's sex or pornography. Think about all of the addictions that we have in our world. For many of us today, it's our phones. But we wind up enslaved to something that we think is going to provide comfort or freedom or happiness or some measure of distraction or diversion. And what we think is going to make us happy winds up enslaving us instead. And the boy is so desperate that he has attached himself to a Gentile. Okay, He goes to feed pigs. That's what Jesus tells us. You've got to understand. The Jewish Talmud says, Cursed is the man who breeds swine. So Jesus is basically, I mean, the Jews in Jesus's audience who were hearing this, they would have like just bristled at the idea of this younger son now working for a Gentile, now working among pigs. And then when you think it can't get any worse, look at verse 16. Jesus said, he longed to eat his fill from the pods the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. I mean, this is the lowest of the low. And that's where sin eventually leads us. To a place where pig's food looks good. Now, I know many of us think, oh, well, this is a, a picture, not really of us. It's a picture of the prodigal. But in so many ways, this is what sin does. It leads us to become less human, to, become, to, to have animalistic instincts, to have the, des- the desires Of 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 animals. So I mean, you think about it in our society today. How many times when people talk about the business world, the career life, climbing the ladder? How many times do people talk about the business world as a dog eat dog world? Have you ever heard that before? Or a world in which you have to claw your way to the to the top? I don't know many people who have claws. I do know animals that have claws. Why is it that we turn to these animalistic metaphors to talk about? Our world today it's because we recognize deep down that this is where sin leads us. We use animal metaphors because sin leads to the dehumanization of the person, to where sin leads us to to crave the things of animals, to act like animals, to have the same desires as animals. This is what happens with the prodigal son. Animal instincts. But Jesus tells us that at this point the boy wakes up. He comes to his senses. Now I want to tell you, I do think that the boy is sorry for the state that he's in. And I think the boy is hungry, but I'm not sure that this is the moment of true heartfelt repentance. Like where he's ready to completely change his ways. And here's why. Well, first of all, this is the same word. Remember, Luke is giving us this parable from Jesus. This is the same word that Luke uses in Acts about with the apostle Peter when he's in prison. Do you remember the story of the apostle Peter when he's in prison and an angel lets him out of prison? And he thinks he's dreaming because he's out of prison. And eventually it says, uh, Peter gets out on there, on the street and he, he Luke says, Peter came to his senses. So he realized he wasn't in a dream. It's like he woke up, he wised up. And so the boy in this sense is wised up. But there's another reason that I think the boy isn't truly repentant yet. And that's because Jesus tells us the boy is hungry. He's desperate. He'll do anything to get out of the state that he's in. He probably does feel sorry for some of his past actions and that they've led to this set of circumstances. But it's the feeling that you've got, you know what it's like. You got caught for something, but you're not really sorry about what you did. You're more sorry that you got caught. You know what that's like. And there's one other reason why I think that the boy may not be truly repentant yet. And that's because the prodigal son chooses the very words of Pharaoh in the Old Testament. Do you remember the, the story of Pharaoh? He's the only other person in the Bible who actually said this phrase. I have sinned against heaven and I've sinned against God and, and, and against you. When Pharaoh said that, he was talking to Moses. And he would say it to Moses when, Moses, when he was basically wanting the plagues to stop coming. Do you remember the scene where Moses like, let my people go. Pharaoh's like, no. And then a plague would come and he'd be like, okay. And he'd be like, I've sinned against God and against you, right? That's what Pharaoh was doing. And I just imagine basically when he was saying that he was, his heart was still hard, but he was just saying what he had to say so that the plague would stop. And I can't imagine the Pharisees who were in Jesus's original audience, missing that connection. They knew their Bibles well, knew their old Testament really well. And so this connection between the prodigal and Pharaoh. So then the boy decides he's gonna go home and that's when we turn our attention to the next character in the story, the reception of the father. Look at the reception of the father, verse 20. So he got up and went to his father, but while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. So Jesus tells us that the father saw him a long way off. So this, this is what this means. I want you to picture the scene, okay? Remember back in Mayberry, back in the community, the little village, when it says that he saw him from a long way off, what that means is that the father is basically in front of the house and he's looking down that main street of the village where the little cottages and houses on each side, little thatched area, that, thatched buildings and whatnot that are, that are basically going all the way down that village. And it gives us the image of the father. Maybe he's out in the front yard, maybe out by the house, maybe he's at the edge of the village, but he's looking and he sees that ragged looking boy that son coming back. Remember, this is the son that shamed him. This is the son that wanted him dead. This is the son that sold off all of his possessions at low prices. And the father is waiting and he's looking and he's watching for him. And then what does it say? He ran threw his arms around his neck. And kissed him. Now, I want you to notice Jesus says that the father ran to meet his son. Listen, in Jesus' day, running is one of the most shameful things that a man of stature in a community could do. Men were known for how they walked, they didn't run. No man with any self respect would be seen prancing around in public. And not only that, for a man in Jesus' day to run, you know what else he would have had to have done? Lift his robes, bearing his legs. That was even more shameful in Jesus's time. Like a man would never have done this. And yet Jesus tells us that the father is so filled with compassion and he is so moved that he pulls up those robes and he runs to his son. And he's running down that main street in the village where you can just imagine everybody out on their porches watching it happen. Like, you know, just watching this happen, the embarrassment, the shame of this act in his culture. And now, listen, we know that the father, he probably, he does want to meet his son. Obviously he's excited. He can't wait to hug his neck and he wants to hold his son again. But I think there's another reason why he runs. You see, the father knows if somebody else from the community were to meet that boy walking into the village, that that person in the village would be totally justified to beat up that boy and send him back on his way. Basically to say to him, how dare you show your face around here again? How dare you come back after all you've done? Basically to say, get away, you scoundrel. That's what might have happened. The father knows if he's not the first person to get to his son, then the judgment of the community will fall upon his boy. So what does he do? Well, he takes all of the shame and all of the judgment of the community upon himself as he runs and all of the shame of the community is falling on him. I mean, who's gonna notice the ragged looking boy at the edge of town when a a, a man of high stature is running with his robes up, running down Main Street. Everyone's gonna be looking at him. Do you see the picture of salvation? God looks at us that ragged sinner at the edge of heaven. And he sees what we can't do. And he sees that the judgment is going to fall on us. And so what does he do? He takes all of the judgment and all of the shame and all of the blame, and he puts it on himself. And he runs to us, runs to us. Jesus, King of the world, Lord of earth and heaven, allowing his identity to be put into question, allowing himself to be spit upon thrown upon a splintery cross, naked, not just robes lifted, naked, exposed, hanging there, bleeding, suffocating to death, all the while taking all the blame, all the shame, all the sins and the evil of the whole world upon his shoulders. God, Running towards man. See, that's the picture of salvation. God running towards man with arms outstretched, not only to embrace us, but to take the nails that were reserved for our punishment. And Jesus tells us that once the dad ran and embraced him and kissed him, the son said to him, and I believe the son's speech here takes on new meaning, genuine meaning. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son And then he stops and notice that he had this. Remember this planned speech that he had? What was the next part of the planned speech? He was going to say, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please make me one of your hired servants. Remember that was the planned speech? The son leaves out that part. There's nothing here about being a hired hand. You know why? Because the dad is not going to run across town for a servant, only for a son. And in this moment, the boy knows and he accepts the fact, I'm, I'm a son. I'm a son. See, the dad sees that boy looking so horrid, ragged, smelly, barefoot, because he's been a slave for a Gentile. And so what does he say? Bring out the shoes. The only sons wore shoes. Servants went barefoot. And then he says, bring out the robe. In other words, we we can't let this boy walk down the main street of town looking so terrible. He's my son. He's going to be, he's going to go back looking honored. And then he says, bring the ring. See, the ring signifies his sonship. And so this is this, the beautiful picture here. Do you realize what happens to each of us once we accept Christ, when we come to God, when we fall into God's arms with open abandon and we say, you are our father, you are the only Christ, who, the only one who can save us. You know, God, the father, what does he do? He puts on us the robe of Christ's righteousness. We can walk the aisle of shame without shame because the shame has been borne by him. We don't have to hide in fig leaves anymore like Adam and Eve. We have Christ's righteousness to cover us. And then he says, bring out the ring. Oh, so when we're baptized, it's like the wedding ring given to us by God, our commitment to him, his commitment to us. When we are saved, God trades in our rags for his robes, our poverty for his riches, our sins for Christ's goodness. And then the father puts on a celebration. Here's the party. Now, if this were the end of the, the movie, the story, you would think that this would be where the credits would be, right? You know, you've got the, the prodigal son is back. The fattened calf has been slaughtered. Here we go. End of the story, right? And you would expect the credits to start going, but instead of the story ending right there, it's like the movie camera shifts and you've got the party in the house and then suddenly we're looking out, oh, there's the field. And that's where we see the third major character of this, the resentment of the older son. The resentment of the older son. Do you remember the older brother? We haven't talked about him in a while, but I remember him from the first scene. Well, he's still there and he's the one who took his part of the inheritance and just kind of stayed quiet. He kept working, serving, doing what he was supposed to be doing. It says he was in the field. And like anyone, you know, this older brother would have been expected once there's a party going on, you kind of, at this point you hightail it into the house, right? Like you just, you get back into the house. There's a party going on in your house and you're kind of outside sulking in the field. But I guess he wants to see what it's all about first. So he doesn't even go to see, he has a servant go and see. Kind of like, well, is this party worthy of my attendance? What exactly is going on here? Anyone know anyone who views church that way? Oh, is this church worthy of my attendance? Is this church worthy of my gifts, my presence? What can this church do for me? Is this church good enough for me? You see, Then the servant says to the older brother, he says, hey, your brother has come. Your father, the other member of the family, has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. Basically, he's saying, look, the reason to celebrate. The father has forgiven the younger brother. The family has been restored. The family has been reconciled. But it says the older brother was angry. He refused to go in. You know, I've met with, I've served with people who are involved in church, seem to be close to the Lord, giving of their lives and their times and their talents in so many different ways. But Maybe something takes place in their life where they didn't get what they wanted out of it. They weren't necessarily doing all of their good work because of love for the Father, but because of what they thought the Father might give them. And so something happens Celebration takes place in the life of someone else or they see God working or God blessing someone else. And instead of celebrating with them, something boils up inside them and they'll, they'll say something like, I deserve better. See, it's this root of bitterness that's planted long ago, but in a moment of fury, the words pour out of the person like venom out of a snake. So the boy is angry. Everybody else is feasting inside, having a party. The boy is outside pouting. He's angry. So what does the father do for the older brother? Well, he leaves his guests and he goes outside. Just like he went to the younger brother, he goes himself to the older brother and he entreats him. He pleads with him to come in. See, this would have been embarrassing too. I mean, the father's the host of the party. He's leaving behind all of his guests. You can just imagine they're all like, looking in the window, you know, looking out in the backyard. What's going on? Why is the father doing this? Well, basically his older son now is putting on public display his broken relationship with the father. And I just want you to see, do you see what's taking place here? What we have are two sons who have walled themselves off from the love of God in different ways. The younger son, Put up a wall. He walled himself off from the love of God by doing bad things. The older son has walled himself off from the same love by doing good things. And the father goes out, pleads with him to come in. And look at what the brother says Oh, there's no father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. He doesn't even call him father, he just says, Look, I have been slaving many years for you and I have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, notice he won't even call him his brother. Okay. When this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. See, there's that attitude again. I deserve more. I deserve better. And this is why in the self-righteousness of the human heart, even in our churches, many times, there are people who have been seen as Christians for many years who will walk into church, serve the church. And when they see celebration going on in the lives of others, they are unable to be joyful. Instead, they are jealous and they're mad and they're grumpy. But notice what the father says to the, Son, he says, Son, you are always with me. He says, Look, you're my son. Don't look to me like you're an employee of mine and I'm like a banker or something, like I'm just a boss. Don't look at me like you're my slave and I'm your taskmaster. Look at me. You're my son. I'm your father. And he says, You are always. With me. Now, notice that, because see, for the father, it was never about the inheritance. It was never about the estate that was spoiled. The issue with the younger son, from the father's perspective, had always been that the younger son, the prodigal, went off and was no longer with him. And now the son is back. He is with him again. And the father says to the elder son, you were always with me. All that is mine is yours. What's this about a young goat? Everything we have, we share. We're a family, remember? And he says, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother, notice, subtle reminder there. For this, your brother was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. Now listen, Jesus leaves the parable without an end. Because we don't know what happens next. I mean, it kind of leaves you hanging, doesn't it? And what does the elder brother do? Does he go into the house and join the party? Does he join the feast? Kind of leaves you waiting for the conclusion. Was the family together? Did the whole family reconcile? Did the elder brother go into the house? Jesus doesn't tell us. And I think the reason that he didn't tell us the end of the story is because there's a sense in which he's left the ending of the parable to us. We're invited to come up onto the stage, to step onto the platform, to act out the final scene of the parable. So here's the question for us. Are you like the younger brother? Maybe you've left the church before, you've left behind your family, maybe you left God behind. Are you ready to come back home? To come embrace the father who is watching, who sees you from afar? To embrace the savior that bore the cross and took the nails that you deserve? Or maybe you're here and you're more like the older brother. The question for you is, will you stay out in the field? Working away, doing all the right things, keeping all the rules, thinking that you're doing everything you need to do in order to have favor with God. Seeing God as if he's a banker who's issuing out credits based on your merit. Are you ready to no longer wall yourself off from God by your own righteousness? but to repent of your bitterness and to accept the mercy that God extends to you through the cross of Jesus Christ. See, God is here for both the prodigal and the Pharisee, ready to accept both. What will you do? The ending of the parable is in your hands. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this parable that your son gave us, a beautiful picture of salvation, of your love for all kinds of sinners, the outwardly rebellious, the inwardly rebellious. Those that are far from you, those who appear close to you, but whose hearts are far away. Father, I pray that you would prick our hearts this morning. That you would help us to sense conviction where we have strayed from you. And that today would be a day of joyful reconciliation as you would bring us back to yourself. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Fairview Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org.